Welcome to the Sanctum. Here we study the mysteries of Dungeon Crawl Classics and Appendix N. With your keepers of mysteries, Jen Brinkman, Mark Bruner, Bob Brinkman. Enter the Sanctum Socorro and be inspired. Welcome to the Sanctum Socorum podcast, where we plumb the depths of Appendix N as it pertains to the Dungeon Crawl Classics role-playing game. We're here to help you serve these literary offerings at your DCC RPG table. With me tonight are Keepers of Mystery Jen. Hello, guys. And Keeper Bob. Hey, guys. Hold the tomatoes till at least midway through the show. And, of course, our illustrious host, Keeper Mark. Oh, thanks. Uh, Tonight, we are reading Jack of Shadows by Roger Zelazny. Jen, do you want to carry us through the synopsis? In a world half of light, half of darkness, where science and magic strive for dominance, there dwells a magical being who is friendly with neither side. Powerful magical entities live on the night side of the planet, and for the most part, the entity's magical powers emanate from distinct loci. Jack of Shadows, also known as Shadow Jack, is unique among the magical beings in that he draws his powers not from a physical location, but from the shadows themselves. He is nearly incapacitated in complete light or complete darkness, but given access to even a small area of shadow, his potency is unmatched. Jack is a thief who finds himself betrayed and unjustly punished, so he embarks on a vendetta. He wanders through strange realms, encountering witches, vampires, and finally his worst enemy, the Lord of Bats. He consults his friend Morningstar, a great dark angel. He is pursued by a monstrous creature called the Borshin. He journeys from nightside to dayside, casting aside his soul in his quest for vengeance and possibly redemption. Yeah, that's the book I wanted to read. (laughs) this is a book that was nominated for a hugo award it was nominated for a locus award and it lost both of them it lost a philip jose farmer and ursula Le Guin, and i think fittingly so this is an early book and zelazny says that it's not one of his experimental books but it feels like two books that were just kind of pressed together it was so jarring. When I got to the second half of the book, I thought I had a misprinted copy. I thought I was reading something else. Oh, jeez. I, 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 I did. I did a double take. I, the, the tone of the book so directly changes, and I had really enjoyed rooting for Jack, and then all of a sudden, he just becomes kind of a dick. And uh, the, the second half really wasn't all that fun for me. And the first half is fantastic. And then there's that weird day side segment. And then he really is a protagonist villain. And eh, 
I mean, it has a great setup. It's this yes. tide, tide-locked world where science rules the day side and magic rules the night side. There's, you know, these ideas of powers that assume there's some corollary in the scientific world or realms, but in the in the night side, it's Lord of Bats, it's the Jack of Shadows, it's uh, the Baron, you know, each of them, you know, with their own sort of unique abilities, and most of them are foci or location-based. But the idea, you know, that there's this contrast between this world that, you know, they exist, you know, on the same planet, and there's this blending that happens, you know, in the Twilight Zone. It's a great concept. And it seems like the, you know, the setup is carried forward, like you said, I think through about that halfway point, when it seems to either switch over to a different type of narrative. Certainly, I think that section where Jack of Evil instead of Jack of Shadows, I think is how he's referred to by a lot of the characters. Yeah. It's really hard to read. And it's a difficult, challenging read, not just because it's, it's not, I wouldn't say it's badly written. It's just that it's taking a character that was somewhat sympathetic, maybe like you said, Bob, that you're rooting for. And he's not sympathetic. And he's doing some really challenging things to other characters. He gets kind of rapey. He does. Yeah. (laughs) You know, well, I mean, there's the whole, you'll sleep down when you awaken, we will be coupled. You will struggle briefly and then yield to me. I'm like, wait a minute. Yeah. Dude, I mean, that section in particular threw me off, you know, and I had to you know, sit back and say, hey, is this, what, you know, what is Zelazny going for? Because it's so, so not like some of the other Zelazny books where he's writing in a really, truly evil character as a kind of a first person, but still trying to retain that aspect of he's, re, you know, there's a redemption aspect that you know, goes through the end of the, the novel. It's just not earned. So that, that almost makes me feel like it's a commentary on the contemporaries with the misogyny and the forcefulness of everything. And then, oh, well, maybe I want redemption and maybe I don't. Mm-hmm. I'm I'm not sold. <laughs> yeah, to be fair, when you play with the concept of your soul is missing and so you have no emotional attachment and things like that, certainly things are going to get played up. But for the entire second half of the book, it's a bit extreme. Well, and and to be perfectly honest, Lester Del Rey of Del Rey Publishing even panned this for being two different books. And it's about two thirds in where it makes that shift. And having both read it and listened to the audio, yeah, it's uh, it's an interesting piece. And For me, it shifted to about page 115, and I was yeah. not happy anywhere beyond that until, like, the very last page. Hmm. Now, see, it also, I will admit, took half of the book for me to reconcile the fact that this Jack that we're talking about is not, in fact... Jack from A Night in the Lonesome October, <laughs> because the demeanor between the two characters was just so similar. They were sympathetic, and they had these goals that were almost honorable. The vendetta toward the people that screwed him over and kidnapped his girl. Yeah, okay, we can get behind this. But I also hesitate to say anything more uh, inflammatory, at least on my own part, because I've already kind of felt it out amongst the DCC community. And just the mention of this book nets nothing but high praise. I'm like, okay, I get that it was clearly instrumental in creating some of the portions of fantasy gaming as we know it, you know, creating some of those light versus dark themes of magic and technology, but... Well, uh, and the first half of the book is very, very good. I mean, I 
I'm a big Zelazny fan. I, I enjoyed the first half of this book. I really wanted to enjoy the rest of it. And you're right. It was very popular. Uh, he had a lot of pressure from fans to write a sequel, which he never did. He liked kind of the ambiguous ending to it. But he actually created, I believe, two prequels. That is indeed where I was going. He did uh, the short story <laughs> Shadow <Sorry>. Jack. <laughs> there was a character biography called Shadow Jack that he did in a uh, short story collection. And then he wrote uh, Shadowland, which was the outline for a movie, for an animated film that never went anywhere. And that was turned into a graphic novel as well. He certainly returned to the character and kind of dip back to the well, but he had already written the ending. I have a feeling the prequels are probably more up my alley because, again, the first yeah. half of the book, I was really siding with Jack, and uh, and then, then it sort of lost me until that very last page. I enjoyed the last page not because it was over, but because I did greatly enjoy that last passage of the book. The ambiguity? Well, just just the, the visual of him releasing Morningstar and Morningstar streaking down from the heavens to save him. And then you're left wondering if he does or not. But just that that imagery is so solid. It's so Zelazny. It's, it's titanic in scope and yet personal. And that's what I wanted out of this book. Yeah. First of all, his, his character is a very similar voice to a lot of his other works. His protagonist, like you said, it feels very similar to Night of the Lonesome October, or that Jack. It feels very similar to Corwin from the Amber series. You know, the same sort of voice, the same sort of vendetta. It's like a, a revenge book in, in many ways, you know, where the protagonist is wronged. He has to go out and, and often there's twists and turns along the way. And it's a hollow revenge in a lot of Zelazny work where it's the goal of revenge is once it's realized, is realized not to be worthwhile in some ways. Um, or it changes the protagonist, or it changes yeah. the protagonist in some ways. What he's doing here, though, he's working with a kind of the core concept where the protagonist is admittedly unchanging. Right? He is soulless, and so he doesn't have a character development. Although there's hints that that's not true. You know, and so it's it's a difficult thing for him to pull off. And I, I think all of us sort of agreed that it's it doesn't really quite work. But that last image, like you said, there's this. He has literally changed the world. Right. And from this, the way it was into possibly a, an echo of what our world is, because it's no longer tide locked. It's no longer bound by the constraints of science and magic being separated, you know, that sort of thing. But I also one thing kind of curious is that, you know, as I was reading this, I was wondering, is he trying to play some sort of joke on the reader as a as sort of a metal level? Because repeatedly, Jack of Shadows is Jack of Lies. He is spinning tales everywhere, you know, in, in terms of the conversations he's having with characters. But in a way, he's spinning tales to the readership with how he describes himself, how he describes his relationship uh, with, like, you know, the love that he lost. You, I mean, it's... So it's, are you saying he's, he's an unreliable narrator? Very, yeah, and in, in, <laughs> to a point that is, it's almost like an experimentation novel in the sense that is this Zelazny's sort of wry way of taking a character, you know, getting the sympathies and then making that character play out as 
as he's been telling you all along in a certain sense. I don't think that's necessarily what's going on, but I was, I kind of thought that would be a very Zelaznian sort of thing to do since he's, he's kind of much into sort of wryness and wordplay and, and jokes. That's, that's very true. And yeah, I hadn't really considered Jack as an unreliable narrator, but that, that really kind of casts at least part of it into a, a bit of a different light. I don't know if it, changes my overall enjoyment of the second half of the book, but at least it's it's interesting food for thought. It certainly makes the nonsensical philosophical discussions with Morningstar make a little bit more sense. Because some now, see, of those were just they were going nowhere for about two pages each. <laughs> have you ever discussed philosophy? Because that's kind of how they go. Well and, <laughs> I mean, and we'll we'll get to that with some of the modules that we'll tie into later. <laughs> I'm sure. <laughs> but, but I mean, in, yeah. in those conversations, one of the key points that Morningstar makes is that everyone's perspective is valid, right? Jack has a very clear idea of what lies at the center of the world. Well, so do the scientists that you know, live on the day side. It's two completely different interpretations, but they are both real in the way that Morningstar's description of reality is. It, it gets into that, you know, who is telling the truth and what is Jack's truth when he's, especially in these early parts of the novels. Well, and I just... I really dug the sphinx-like presence of Morningstar. Oh, yeah, you know, yeah. Bound in the twilight, waiting for dawn that never came, and Jack approaching him and speaking to him for wisdom. It really kind of reminded me of, of the old stories of when the sphinx's head emerged from the sand and people would whisper into its ear and hope to gain secrets. So that was, I, I, it was very Zelazny. I really, there's a lot of really cool concepts in it. I just. And it's also very Zelazny that Jack offers him basically cigarettes and beer to, to chat him <laughs> up. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. Uh, yeah. Even an eye of cat. <laughs> Which was one of his experimental novels that came before this. Yeah. I guess I'm glad I read that one first. I mean, before any of the others that we've gone over or will in the future. Because <laughs> that, yeah, I'm not revisiting that one. <laughs> See, now, I really enjoy Eye of Cat. I've read it repeatedly since I first read it. 30 plus years ago. And so I really do. I, I enjoy that story. And actually, it was the first piece of Zelazny that I'd ever read. It is at least cohesive through... It's not different books stitched together. Yeah. This... I I think Delray was right. I, I can't get past that, and I can't really reconcile that, that discordancy of tones. I wanted to like it. I wanted to give it the huge high acclaim that everybody else in the community Stop does. Stop page 115. Um, <laughs> noted. Yeah, they, I mean, they, there's a lot of cool stuff in that in that first 115 pages. Well, uh, and there's a lot of cool concepts even after that. It's just that Jack becomes a monster yeah. at that well, point. And he's separated from his soul, which is also his conscience. Yes, and that is essentially the rest of the book, and it's brutal, and for me, it just wasn't fun. I will say I did enjoy the visualization of the shadow appearing after the rock that it is embedded in is shattered, and that shadow follows him and just wants to be rejoined with the body. Uh, I will say that that part of the last half of the book seriously intrigued me. Did either one of you sort of see that as Rick Mayel from Drop Dead Fred? Because I should be. <laughs> it does, this it ghostly does entity that nobody else could see that's annoying the crap out of you. 
nobody else can see it, so he's not sure if he's going mad or not. And it's just like, I just want to be with you. Shut up. I'm thinking, well, of course, it just wants to be with you, and it's going to keep after you. You're rapey. You should get it. <laughs> oh, just, oh. Yeah. It was just, oh. One of the concepts I really, really did dig in the first part of that book was the resurrection uh, mm-hmm. of the powers, how it takes them years to regenerate, and then they have to basically navigate this sort of hellscape or wasteland in order to it's like almost like a a game you know like a a, a game show type effect where they're dodging you know the various things that the baron's throwing at them that's a kind of a fun interesting concept it ties in with the soul too because that's a piece of thing that he throws away after waking up that's brought back later didn't the darksiders have limited lives too yeah it's hinted at yeah that they they do because he says that he's just going to sit there and wait the other guys out and just keep having them killed as they come along. Yeah. I thought there was mention at the very beginning before he is, well, sent there. Yeah, how many lives you have left. And and Jack didn't answer, and the response was, oh, good, that means you have at least one more. <laughs> well, yeah, and, and again, that first segment, there were so many neat things in there, and at this point, you're rooting for him. I mean, here he is. He's quasi-unjustly accused. He really was there to steal it, but he was just perfectly willing to just walk away and call it done, and uh, they had to murder him and take several years of his life away. Based on reputation... And then he's got to fight his entire way back. But that entire segment is filled with such neat concepts. The necklace prison that the person wearing it keeps appearing inside of while still wearing it, which hurt my brain, but yeah. in a good way. <laughs> um, yeah, the, the vampires. There's just, it's chock full of wonderful, wonderful Zelaznean things. And. And we should have gotten together after each half of the book, apparently, to discuss it. And then we'd have a much more powerful view. Yeah, but that second show would have been very, very bitter and ugly. (laughs) It's probably good that we've got more of a balance. (laughs) <laughs> oh man we could talk about all the things we liked yes yeah well and there was some really good stuff i mean moving to things to stat i really would love to stat morningstar this promethean satan figure i really enjoyed the character i enjoyed the interplay and at the end you see he is so powerful he's near if not patron powerful i think he would be really cool to stat up or you know the spell that holds him chained at the gates of dawn Mm -hmm. or maybe even the concept of ancient magics because there's the shield that the various powers have to maintain that prevents the world from slipping out of its tide lock and this concept of ancient magics that are too powerful for any wizard of the quote modern age to cast, but they can still maintain them to some sort of semblance and fashion. I think that would be kind of neat to uh, create a system for. Hmm. There was the fungi-covered rock, telepathic (laughs) doom. That was really neat, and I greatly enjoyed the interplay between them. There was mention of metallic trees, and that was it. They just mentioned metallic trees, and Jack knew to avoid them. And that just sort of sparked something. The the concept of, like, these palm trees covered in chrome springs to mind. You can always figure out what the value of a moon bar is. And the Lord of Bats, or the Colonel, 
any one of the powers are certainly worthy of statting up as NPCs or patrons or any number of other things. I mean, certainly the Lord of Bats was also a wizard. He kept his wand. He worked magics. So just a lot of really interesting stuff. What did you think, Jen? What, what did you have? You know, off the top, I would go with a pair of classes, one being Darksiders, of course. And you could even go into the bonuses that vampire blood would have if ingested. <laughs> you know, if you want to completely metagame the book, right? And that of the colonel who never died, whose reign Jack ended up taking over. I would definitely want to stat up the Hellflame, the item that he was sent to procure. Mm, yeah. And, you know, maybe jazz that up a little bit even. Uh, we could do the Dung Pits of Glive as a location, the place where Definitely. he comes back yeah. to. It could be almost a complete opposite to the Elven Hill from King of Elfland's Daughter. Yeah. And again, uh, the Soul Stone sucked me in. I would like to explore that a little further. You know, are they common items or are they little pieces of Earth's history that are imbued with an awakening of conscience? And is that why he carried one around in his pocket for a while? So little things like that. Morality. It's kind of important, even if it is a book. <laughs> yeah. That really is what turns that last page of the book around and made you enjoy it again. <laughs> Well, he it was imagery. Out, he looked out at the twilight and he found himself thinking that, oh, this actually is beautiful. And that's how he knew, oh, oh, the soul must have caught up with him and merged after all. Because yeah. he never would have thought that afterwards. Soul, yeah, you could do a lot with soul stones and the idea of either removing it in part of a session or characters starting without it and making it part of a campaign. It's, a, it's an interesting concept. Well, and how would anybody know that this stone is any different than thousands of others in a pool of pebbles, right? Well, she knew because she was a witch woman. Exactly. Nobody else is really going to. So it'd be a really nice quest item. Deal with an NPC for it. First of all, discovering that you are missing something like that and then having to find out where do you return it to yourself. Get a couple cryptic clues about rocks. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. What about you, Mark? You know, what Bob was saying kind of made me think a way to phrase what Zelazny does often is very similar to what happens in Jack Vance, to my mind, where he has a lot of sort of ideas that are populating the landscape, but are not really, they're not driving the narrative. And, and he even mentions, I think, at the beginning of the foreword that the title Jack is an homage to Jack Vance. And so he's got to be sort of thinking stylistically, you know, in some concepts, the way that Jack Vance <laughs> what is. What can I is create right. and throw away? Yeah. 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 I mean, so so you think have things like the Shunder, which is that wolf-like creature that accompanies the Baron. It's just mentioned in that scene, but it's not becoming like a part of the, the narrative. So it doesn't get fully described, right? Yeah. And the, the metallic trees don't get fully described. The things that the Hell Games, you know, you don't know anything more about the Hell Games, although it's driving the reason for the Hell Flame. It's kind of mentioned as one of the powers that Jack has revenge on. He makes him do a dance later as part of, you know, this automaton penance that he's hoping, well, he, he's doing it until his blood bursts, you know, his heart bursts and things like that. Well, what I want to know more about the Hell Games, you know, what <laughs> that's a pretty intriguing concept that, you know, that they have this kind of 
thing, but it's not, maybe it's covered in, in some of the prequels or something like that, but it's kind of an interesting sort of, sort of throwaway. You know, you get those, those are great things that I think you take and possibly, you know, elaborate on or just run with. There was a couple of other things like the spells in this book feel very DCC to me. The idea of summoning a mountain and having it plow into the fortress of your enemy <laughs> was was like that is a you know level critical success lo- level thirty two plus you know oh, yeah. uh, result you spell burns you know or you got your MacGuffin device uh, the, the key that he was searching for to you know able to do that but that felt satisfying when he's doing that until he turns into sort of jack of evil but you know that revenge part is like wow that's a DCC way and then I think the powers when they're activating their runes the Lord of Bats uses his own blood which is you know a very spellburn type concept Jack has to use his broken fingernails to trace the rune that he has and it's much more difficult that way so you can have casters that are inhibited by the die chain if they don't have their sword point to cast their rune or something like that so kind of more tools for the judges in that way nice I yeah, agree building that, on the flavors. Yeah, I agree that the powers, either great sort of NPCs or patrons, and I think the Baron, he's got a demeanor that's sort of brutish, but he's also referenced as being a very powerful sorcerer, you know, so that you could take a lot with that concept. The Lord of Bats obviously has, you know, a lot of material to work with as well. Um, and I agree with Morningstar being, you know, sort of this quasi-oracle type figure that, that'd be kind of fun to introduce into a setting. Another thing that I took away was the Book of Elves, which is referenced as part of their defense of the freezing night from turning the the night side into a frozen waste, is they have this shield spell that has to be maintained. And it's like the book basically creates an association among the dark powers where they have to work together, even though they are, at most of times, they're at odds. And again, it sort of made me think of like associations of magicians in Vance, you know, where they have rules of sort of working together, but, you know, most of the time they are competing with each other, whether it's for the affairs of the mundane world or the affairs of magic. And the idea that you could take that and create compacts or rules that are part of a game system, right? So, you know, whether it's, whether it's, uh, you know, an association of magicians or sorcerers in, in a campaign setting, and, and what does that mean? You know, what, what does it mean to have those rules in place? And, and what happens when they're broken by players? Um, and, and what do the NPCs react to them? So I thought that would be kind of a, a fun thing to, to stat up is like the Book of Elves type associations for magicians. And, and the totally- conditions, yeah. You know, granted, it gave me kind of this Python-esque vision of the warring parties, and then all of a sudden, ding, oh, sorry, we have to stop now. (laughs) Which essentially happens in the story. Um, I'm terribly sorry that you've been keeping me prisoner, but now you have to let me go, sucker. Yeah. But conceptually, you're right. That is really neat. And creating some sort of system to put in backgrounds like that, these debts among the powerful, that's something that could either be written into the beginning of a campaign or built up through campaign play. As a character is gaining levels and gaining power, they begin gaining responsibilities that even their enemies recognize. Yes, I think you do that as a way of advanced play. Like you said, there's a lot of good, cool ideas in the book that you could leverage for both just flavor or just grabbing an idea and and then expanding on it because it's not really expanded on the books, you know, and so you have a lot of freedom as a writer to do that. Yes. Yeah. And if you went into your game without prep, you could grab just one of these ideas and create an adventure on it. Do a complete sandbox. 
like a cage that your characters are placed in that is an amulet that somebody's wearing. That's a pretty cool concept to start like a funnel or just like a this is where you begin your next adventure and you have to figure out what are the tricks you can do to get out. What are the terrors that might haunt you inside that cage and that sort of thing. I think that would be like a real cool way to begin a campaign. God, or, or That's a or great grabs. bit of imagery too. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. Very cool. What about uh, props and audio suggestions that are brought up by this work? How about you, Jen? Right off the bat, Jack of Shadows is a song on Hawkwind's album PXR5, which was released in the same year as this book, and oh. is said to be a direct correlation. And my list of props on this one, shy of getting big, giant, mirrored necklace, I'm going back to the pebbles, back to the stones, to represent the souls. Oh, you know, Disney at the Animal Kingdom, one of the candies they sell are these very realistic-looking candy rocks. Oh, God. I, I can see putting those out. Yes, this is your soul stone. Munch. Ooh. Salt tastes like Munch. licorice. Fort save versus 30 or die. Oh, man. So, yeah, I, I'm going with a simple list on this one. What about you? One of the things that I sort of that bled over from the things to stat was this idea of tide locking the world for something like Purple Planet or MCC and mm-hmm. creating effects based on that. So imagine the Purple Planet where half the map is light and half the map is dark and there's different effects of magic and science because you already have the built in artifacts within Purple Planets and there's some benefit to using them on the light side and some benefit to using magic on the dark side. And I thought that would be kind of a cool overlay to just bring some of the Jack of Shadows vibe into an existing setting like Purple Planet. And there's already sort of built in way to do that. And as part of that, you know, you could play around a lot with lighting. When you're in the shadow side, you change the lighting at your gaming table. Similar when you're the day side, you change the lighting. I was really more thinking along the lines of what could you do from a mechanic standpoint to play around with light and shadow, like it's described in the book. And my idea was have that division in the world literally depicted and your players especially if you're taking them to like a purple planet world that's just another way of overlaying something onto it and taking the existing rules and bringing some of that aspect to it and that concept of then you have a tide locked world that's pretty cool you get into the science behind it and you get into you know what effect that has on your characters and i I think you could do a lot with that from a from a setting standpoint because it's not weird enough yeah. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's, it's a little, I mean, it's not a lot that came to me as far as props with this one. So like I said, it was really just more thinking along the lines of mechanically, what could you introduce that might be a fun concept um, and still echo what I found to be one of the more fascinating parts of the novel. What about you, Bob? Well, on a less than practical note, when he was in the necklace and he was described as being in this bright area with no light, I was remembering a story one of my techs had told me at Caesars. The tech had been working on FX, the show with Crawford, and for some reason during rehearsal, one of the lightning guns, which is essentially the incredibly bright lights they used to simulate lightning, came on and did not go off until it <laughs> overheated and, and and burned out the safety. And while bathed in that light up on the catwalk, the tech's comment was, yep, God's here. And so I had, I had sort of that, that imagery. And of course, you can buy ungodly bright lights. But 
in a more practical fashion, especially since this is 1971 and it's 1971 future and fantasy, the idea of lights that also throw shadows, mm-hmm. lava lamps, totally. Oh, yeah. <laughs> because it's not the darkness of the shadow that gives Jack power, it's the fact that there is a shadow. Mm-hmm. It doesn't have to be this pitch black, inky well of night. Just and has so, to be a little bit different, yeah. Right, and so the concept of lights that are, are casting shadows uh, certainly came to my mind. And music, of course, 1971 future, I generally think electronica, because when I was a kid, that is what the future sounded like. The electric light um, parade? <laughs> yes! Uh, although, although not on my list, yes, that is what the future sounded like. <laughs> There's an independent artist called Tim P. Scott, and he released an album entitled Jack of Shadows, which was very clearly inspired by the novel. I mean, it goes through section by section. I listened to a few samples of it, though, and it's kind of unfortunate. I don't know if I'd technically recommend it, but people can make up their own minds. They'll probably agree with me, though. (laughs) There is an artist calling himself King Devin Burke III, and he released a uh, track medieval electronic dance music. And it doesn't really draw on medieval music structure. It doesn't really conform to the style, but it captures that feeling. And that's really what you need for music, is music should set a tone and a place, whether or not it's wholly accurate. Samuel Kennedy released an entire album, The Medieval Moog, which is actually a very entertaining electronic album. And then if you want something a bit more analog, maybe not straight medieval, Hesperus released an album called Crossing Over, which is a fusion of medieval music with Appalachian. So now picture Jack of Shadows and the Shutter Mountains. Is it still electronica? No, it's it's okay. analog. It's it's banjo and harp. Oh, okay. And it's it's really, really neat. And once you move to the analog, I mean obviously there's Blackmore's Night and any yeah. of their like seven or eight albums that's more traditional with more up tempo modern feel. And for those that want something that's darker and edgier and perhaps brutal. There's a <laughs> Russian band <laughs> Alkanost. And they released an album called Shadows of Dark Days, which is a medieval metal album. And so they're fusing kind of this dark metal feel with medieval folk music. And it's very unnerving and kind of creepy. But it's got a really good beat to it. So it, it fits. It fits. Those are those are my <laughs> my uh, my very few props and my very many music recommendations. <laughs> you just want to be able to switch genres like halfway through the session, completely switching to some other alternative. I, I, Death metal I, to I harpsichord. S- I see what you're getting out there, Mark. <laughs> <laughs> that kind of takes us, I think, to to what inspires us and what we would reskin with that pounding backbeat of doom. <laughs> what what, what are your thoughts, Mark? So I think there's a lot that echoes the adventures that talk about, you know, deal with resurrection and and death quite a lot. Blades Against Death as being one of those, like, the key ones. In that one, the adventurers are sent to possibly recover somebody from the realms of death. And so that's very similar to some of the resurrection themes that are in the night side and and discussions about the powers. Black Sun Deathcrawl? Black Sun Deathcrawl is another one that you can't help but read that section and feel sort of the the grinding, harrowing elements, especially crawling through the mud to get out. It just, at the rebirth moment, you could easily 
make that a part of the death crawl to return from death is a reskinning of Black Sun, where you're not escaping the Black Sun, you are crawling to recover your body, right? And you have to survive that in order to to become another a character again, right? So that, that'd be kind of a fun way of doing it after a TPK, where you start out as the Black Sun death crawl setting, but you may, if you survive, maybe you give your characters back, which would be kind of a cool Brilliant. thing. Brilliant. Nice. The thieving aspects are very much echoed in the Lankmar material, especially Mask of Lankmar. Oh, yes. Jack of Shadows, Jack of Thieves. You know, he's he's obviously the the first framing is him trying to steal the Hellflame from the games. Surprisingly, he's not very good at it, you know, with with, with how much power he's, he's said to have. You know, he's caught fairly easily or caught out fairly easily because I guess he thinks he has a pretty easy way of escaping, which is who would dare kill him and enact his revenge and boy does he find out he does <laughs> yes he does um so obviously there's a lot of the ventures that play into heists and thieving that you could get into and like i said especially like the ones that have Langmar feel when i wrote twilight of the solstice i based a lot of the core inner workings of the giant mechanical clock that keeps track of the world's time on the Long Now Foundation's 10,000-year clock project, which is, you know, this kind of like this idea of having a massive clock buried in the desert somewhere that'll keep track of time for millennia. But to me, the section on the world engine at the core of the world and the mechanics and the gears and things like that really made me think of the parts of Twilight of the Solstice, which were dealing with the, the inner workings of the clock that sets the time for the world in my concept. So I, th- I thought that was kind of a neat thing. I'd never read Jack of Shadows before, so there was kind of a neat echo of some of the things that I'd been thinking about when I was writing, well, what would a world clock be like? And taking this idea that the Long Now Foundation put together of a clock that can exist for millennia, how would you translate something like that to something of a clock that controls time? So I thought that was kind of a, a neat part of the book that did come in the second half. And, the, <laughs> and I thought was actually a really kind of a a fun sort of mini adventure. Yeah. I mean, his, his whole journey to the center of the earth is filled with shadows without lights and foreign beasts that he has to get rides from and this caretaker at the center of the world that's like oiling the machines and, and all that brutally all. murdered yeah yeah and there's these these giants that take care of the machinery you know again twilight of solstice has a lot of that in it so i thought there's parts of that you could certainly take and say okay instead of the world clock you know to keep track of time it's keeping track of the tide locked world you know and you have kind of an adventure setting for heroes journeying there and questing to unlock the trapped world or something like that because something's wrong with the clock. So you could do something like that with that adventure as well. Jeez, um, Mark, you're, made, you're making me want to change the featured. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, that's about it. What about you, Bob? Uh, first of all, I agree with you on uh, Black Sun Deathcrawl. And really, any time I can mention Black Sun Deathcrawl is a good time to mention <laughs> Black Sun Deathcrawl. Because Black Sun Deathcrawl, Black Sun Deathcrawl, Black Sun Deathcrawl. Love that adventure. We, we um, don't but, get paid at all for every mention of it, so it's okay. <laughs> Crap. Well, okay. <laughs> um, but I really started thinking about it. the parallel. Jack can't die. And when you look at the way the story ends, well, perhaps his interference, perhaps his breaking things and getting the Earth or whatever the world is to rotate may be part of the magical after effects of that bioelectric physic phlogiston collision <laughs> is that the sun goes black 
because of his shadows. And perhaps that is the origin of the black sun. Mm-hmm. So, so that immediately sprang to mind thinking of the, the dichotomous world. It would be, I think, very simple to take a MCC campaign and using this as a basis and drawing a little bit on 1977's Wizards by Bakshi. Mm-hmm. where half of the world is kind of this fantasy world and the other half is this dark post-apocalyptic hellscape. Well, that's that's kind of MCC, dark post-apocalyptic hellscape. So you could very easily translate the light and dark side portions into an MCC campaign. Mm-hmm. And if you really wanted to, you could even reskin mutations, depending on how thoroughly you want to go. Dichotomize as, it, yeah. Well, as the powers. And so you're a dark sider. These aren't mutations. This is your power. And, and so you could, you could go that route because while there were the great powers who were bound to certain locations other than Jack, there were other creatures that lived in the dark side. So you could certainly, you could certainly draw that together. I think if you wanted to run a Jack of Shadows campaign, I would use MCC. Hmm. So Interesting. What were your thoughts, Jan? Interesting. Thank you. It's interesting that you should mention wizards because rumor has it within the community that it was actually taking Jack of Shadows for heavy inspiration. So I will see your Black Sun Death Crawl, Mark and Bob, and raise you a null singularity. I call. <laughs> where science overrides magic and but you still have that bleakness say, of the Shadowland, and just the little lines within. Entropy terminates complexity. The null singularity ate the light, and paradigm dictates reality. I'm like, wow, that last one really does fit the last third of the book. Um, (laughs) But the overall feeling, especially with going for the technology side and letting everything get the better of him, yeah, yeah. Definitely bleak, definitely blacks on Deathcrawl, but I, I knew Bob was going to jump on that one, so I, I went a step further. Um, I will also toss Glipcario's Gambit in there, because mm-hmm. in the mm-hmm. pursuit of unstoppable power, Glipcario seizes the Temple of the Three Fates and taps into their wellspring of power for fuel to power up his spells and make them bigger and better. I think Theater of the Hammed would be phenomenal in this setting with the differences with perception. Interesting. And perhaps the entirety of that module takes place within that twilight veil between the two. And that's why some things look different than they really are. And Against the Atomic Overlord holds a sweet spot in my heart. And uh, yeah, magic can definitely interfere with technology. And in there... That's a pretty meaty book. We've gone over it before. You do have the differing factions and goals, so you could still meet the Lord of Bats, but it's a little more um, alien. And you could meet the other side on the technology. They actually are hybridized AIs, for lack of better words. So without going quite MCC, you could still have that sci-fi and fantasy blend. 
Well, gosh, you mentioning that makes me think there's the satellite that is over the dark side that the Jack eventually brings down. And I'm suddenly struck by the fact that filled with magical technologies is the Tower Out of Time, and it descends from the heavens. You could certainly tie something like that in as well. Uh, yeah. I really... Uh, <laughs> When you mentioned Against the Atomic Overlord, I mean, Edgar Johnson does such a good job, I think, of having the different factions sketched out enough. It really does feel like those loci and those powers, you know, that are, exactly. are set to their existing location. So I, I think that's a really interesting example, especially of a DCC work that I think gets that component right in a brief format, you know, a brief adventure module format. Well, I wouldn't call it brief. It is, <laughs> what, 36 pages? Compared to this book, it's very brief. Yeah. <laughs> but it it's full, and I, I bet can I Edgar say I, had more than one draft. I, I don't. <laughs> I, I can attest to that. Salazny uh, <laughs> didn't. But I. <laughs> okay, and, and to revisit that, it's partly because it was published as a serial. And well, that's not it was why one he draft did it as out. a draft, though. He did, he did it as one draft, and it was serialized and then put out as a novel. That's not why he did one draft. He just did one draft and out. But I think it could have benefited from a little bit of tweaking after the serialization before being published as one big piece. Edit for tone. Edit for tone. Um, well, actually, there's even a difference between the serialized version and the originally released yeah. novel. Because I was of the reading about that, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, there's a conversation that gets all garbled in. I was I was reading that that conversation with Morningstar and Jack, and I was like, "Who is talking here? Well, who is who is the voice that I'm supposed to be listening to?" And I had to go and dig up some of that research that suggested the editor didn't transcribe it or or it interposed his own changes because he was misinterpreting the text as he was editing it, which I just thought Which is something I've been, t I've been talking about things like that with my D&D &D players recently since <laughs> I just recently discovered that I've been doing falling damage wrong all these years because <laughs> the editor changed the way Gary wrote it. It's not supposed to be a D6 for every 10 feet. It is so cumulative. So now, now we're going with intent versus rules as written. I call shenanigans. <laughs> it's rules as originally written. It's raw as opposed to Ray. Rules as edited. <laughs> so that brings us to our DCC feature for the show, The Jeweler Who Dealt in Stardust by Harley Stroh, contained in DCC number 89, Chaos Rising. Ooh. The fences of Punjar are infamous for their cunning and greed, and Boss Ogo is no exception. Operating under the guise of a jeweler, Ogo does a brisk trade in stolen goods, enjoying the protection of a gang of bravos and thugs. But even the wary eye of a gang boss is no promise of surety in Punjar's deadly environs. For the last month, no one has seen or heard from Ogo. The jeweler's door is barred, his shutters locked, and no smoke escapes from the shop's chimney. Like ravens circling a stinking carcass, the bravos and pinch thieves of the sook smell a fortune for the taking. All that is required is a band of rogues audacious enough to cross Boss Ogo, skilled enough to survive his house of traps, and lucky enough to make it out alive. <laughs> I love this adventure. <laughs> this it, wow! Wasn't I, I, this Free RPG Day? Oh, I want to say two thousand four. No, this is 2012. This is this year's with the the 
Undulating? Uh, uh, yeah, the undulating corruption, undulating worm, big thing. That corruption, yes. Okay. <laughs> oh, that's you right. You ran this for us a bit later. Yeah, and that's right. It is, it is so much fun. And you could do so many things with it. Because it's a small set piece, because you're just going into one building, you can put that building anywhere in any time in virtually any setting. You can just reskin and tweak the daylights out of this. If you want to do a, a light side, dark side theft, you could, you could do that. If you want to drop this into Lankmar, you could do that. Uh, oh, oh, yeah. This- so it's so much Lankmar echoes and vibes. Yeah, it's, oh, it's just, beyond Beyond being a a heist, which, of course, Harley is awesome at, it has elements within that are, they could be construed as otherworldly or just magic or magic gone wrong and could very much. The stardust itself. Could very much fit in with Jack's world. Definitely, 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 definitely. Yeah, and there's, I mean, the the ideas of shadows coming into play because parts of the house are abandoned. It's dark when they're when they're doing this. What I really liked about this adventure was it's such a small setting. It's a two story house that you can walk around. It can take a party as long as a full length adventure to plan out in detail how they're going to enter the front. You know, which is kind of this neat little. It makes them think. You know, which is always just a brilliant thing to see played out at the table and have an adventure create that atmosphere like this one does. Oh, yeah. Are you entering from the garden or the front door or the sewers or the roof? I love that there are you watching and waiting to see, you know, what else happens? Are you scared enough to (laughs) sending the canary in? Are you exactly (laughs) well and. Because of how well set this is and how self-contained it is, this goes from being essentially a shop with an apartment above to the inner bailey of a keep. And now this is the keep of the Lord of Bats, and he hasn't been seen, but his servants are still there. Are you going through the tunnels below? Are you going to go through the strange, twisted, dark gardens? How are you going to get in? And what is there to be found? As opposed to, I think there were some sort of freaky little spider things. They could easily be bats. <laughs> you could take any, any number pieces. of... <laughs> well, you could take any number of small details from this book and work them into that adventure. And the jeweler suddenly becomes a wholly different adventure. It feels fresh and renewed and obviously not back to back to back to back, but you could probably, with proper reskinning, you could run this adventure two or three times for a party and they'd never know. <laughs> oh, yeah. And, you know, hey, Mark, there's the Shunder. Perfect <laughs> place right. for it. Yeah. The nice thing, I mean, the reason we picked this, or at least the reason that I thought of this adventure that stands above the others is it highlights thieves and it highlights not just thieves, but a thieving party, you know, which is comprised of all classes, but it really emphasizes what is typically, you know, an under spotlighted activity, but it's a common activity and it it, it takes that and focuses and and that's very much in tone with the character of Jack in terms of his ability to slip away, his ability to enter places that you couldn't be conceived by some of his foes. And it's a fun bridge between the story and the adventuring party that, you know, is often 
often just I check for traps, right? You know, mm-hmm. it's, it's you know it's something that that needs to get more detailed. And Harley just does a great set piece that not just presents the skills that are brought into focus, but the atmosphere and the setup. Why is the judge giving us this one house? You know, is this a trick? You know, <laughs> you know that that's that sort of approach. It's it's very fun. You're right, though. It's got the feeling of a heist film. I guess Roman oh, yeah. numerals DCC. This would be Ocean's Seven Hundred. I guess yeah. is what this would be. Seven sixteen. Well, no, it'd be Seven Hundred DCC. Would be Seven Hundred. Nice. Yeah, that feeling, that vibe. As long as you keep that, that's the integral portion of this adventure that if you're reskinning that you just need to hang on to, is that central point, this is a heist film. It's not a buddy cop story, it's not a horror story, it's not typical sword and sorcery, it is, it's a heist. At, at least for the, the first half, right? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and hey, who knows? Maybe the Stardust is another element that Jack's powers are no longer able to work within. Or or, or maybe the Stardust, since it is like a, a very fine, powdery glitter, at least that's what I took from the descriptions, maybe that's the ground-up soul stones. Interesting. Now that, it all that's a very back. dark heist film. <laughs> uh, well, this is kind of a dark book. Not sure if you noticed. <laughs> well, yeah. Oh, trust me. I, I noticed. I noticed. Well, very cool. I really enjoyed this adventure. Great job, Harley. As always. Definitely. Yeah, it was a lot of fun to run. I'm embarrassed for getting the wrong year, though. You deserve better than that from me. Sorry. <laughs> I'll fix it in post. It's fine. Don't worry about it. <laughs> Okay, so should we move on to some road crew and convention shoutouts for 2018? Sounds good. We are the Keepers of Mysteries. So who are the Guardians of Secrets? You can be. Our community events page has gone live and events are starting to filter in. Send us your upcoming events for inclusion, and once you've submitted a few successfully run events, you will be inducted into the roles of the Guardians of Secrets, able to enter your events directly into the calendar and help players find your games. Members will periodically receive exclusive items for their tables, such as this year's free RPG Day Companion and other secret benefits. January 26th through 28th, there are five tables of DCC gaming being run at Polar Vortex at the College of DuPage in Glen Ellen, Illinois. Judges Joshua O'Connor-Rose and Michael Manzina will be keeping folks busy with adventures including Escape from the Purple Planet, Mall Mall, Trials of the Toymakers, Halls of the Black Diamond King, and Frozen in Time. And friend of the show and guardian of secrets, Troy Tucker, continues to run DCC at the Magician's Forge in Northport, Florida on alternating Saturdays. Check with the store or find Troy Tucker on G Plus or Facebook for more information. M. Nixick is running DCC Funnels from 2 to 6 p.m. every Saturday at Tacoma Games in Tacoma, Washington. Timothy Drennan is running a bi-weekly open table Thursday night DCC game at Geek Out in Burleson, Texas. Join the Appendix N Book Club of New York at Mia's Bakery on January 8th for their discussion of Clark Ashton Smith's Zothique. Simply be at Mia's Bakery at noon and tune in to Jeff's new project, the Appendix N Book Club podcast. 
Jeff Bernstein continues running DCC RPG at my old favorite gaming store, Games Plus in Mount Prospect, Illinois. You can find Jeff online or check with the store for more details. On January 15th, he will be running Dread on Demon Crown Hill. Our very own Jen and Bob Brinkman will be running DCC on January 6th for a local game day event held in Naples, Florida. You can find Judge Julian Burnick and the Minneapolis DCC RPG Society next month at the 26th Annual Con of the North, being held February 16th through 18th at the Crown Plaza Minneapolis West. Julian, John Dahlstrom, John Carnes, and Gary Fortuin will be running DCC, MCC, X-Crawl, Umerica, Nowhere City Nights, and more. Details at www.conofthenorth.org. In addition to all the road crew goodness going on, the new year has begun, and so too has Sanctum Socorum's Super Number One Contest. It's your chance to win a copy of Matthew Goyfon's ultra-rare adventure, Super Number One Food Tower. The adventure was specifically written to be run at North Texas RPG Con in 2015 and was only ever available there. We offer the opportunity to get this wonderful bit of DCC ephemera for free throughout the year. January's contest theme is Monsters. Create a DCC-compatible monster and submit it as your entry into our drawing. Send it with an original piece of art, and you will receive a second entry into the drawing, as well as your art qualifying for a drawing for art prizes later in the year. The more monsters you enter, the greater your chances of winning. One lucky winner chosen at random will receive a copy of 50-Foot Ferrozine Module Number 1 Super Number 1 Food Tower 2015 North Texas RPG Convention Edition, along with a card stock sheet of four pre-gen characters for the adventure. In addition, one runner-up will receive a surprise item from the Sanctum Socorum's Prize Closet of Mystery. Email your entries to the Hub at sanctum.media or mail them to Sanctum Socorum Contest. 4915 Rattlesnake Hammock Road, number 139, Naples, Florida, 34113. Entries for the January drawing are due by midnight Eastern Standard Time, January 31st. You're having way too much fun with this. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Want to see your creation in the DCC community's only free monthly e-zine? We would love to see what sort of things you've created based on your Appendix N reading. Remember, we have quite a few things in our prize closet to give away in return for contributors, zines, modules, and even some great Appendix N. Are you running Road Crew games? Drop us a line to let us know. You can submit your events or creation to us at thehub at sanctum.media or find us on the regular social media sites. Even better, join the Guardians of Secrets. Keep an eye out for our future topics and we can include your material in the show companion. In the meantime, if you're enjoying the show... Drop us an email, comment on the podcast, help us by posting a review on iTunes. Those ratings and reviews help new listeners find the podcast. Be sure and visit us on Google+, light the watchfires, but not in your living room necessarily. We hope we've inspired you. Thanks for listening. Thanks, everybody. Good reading and good gaming. Be inspired. You have been listening to the Sanctum Socorum Podcast. Sea is turning, say they are.
through your week with the same old routine what you really want is some blood and thunder in your life well friend you found it the chromecast is an adventurous journey through the history of two-fisted pulp stories with your hosts john josh and luke we have action horror and adventure all through the lens of pulp luminary robert e howard don't just stay in your ordinary life find your pulp life at the chromecast.blogspot.com the Cromcast. The Cromcast. The Cromcast. A podcast for the barbarian at heart.